I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Simple question surely every investor is considering right now. Should you buy stocks or beware them? We'll debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal, Josh Brown, and Pete Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. It's good to see everybody. Take a look at stocks. A surge in equities today. There you go. Pretty much highs of the day. Dow 612, almost a 2% gain. Uh, volatility obviously continuing over the last few days. S&P is good for one and a third percent. There is the Nasdaq. It's a lagger today. Still a 76 point gain there. A half a percent. Russell's having a pretty strong day, too. Better than two percent. Yields 145 on the 10 year note. Had another Omicron case. This one in Minnesota, as Carl was talking about, the symptoms there said to be mild. Stocks did seem to get a jump on that news. Everybody. OK, let's begin the conversation. Kramer told us yesterday when he was here, Santa Claus rally still intact. We talk about how many stocks. Stocks were uh, down a lot. Josh, I noted two days ago, I saw this on Twitter, two days ago at 2.30 in the afternoon, you said, quote, buy them. Tell me more. I, on, I only do, they told me I have to do one tweet a month for the algorithm. That was a good one. So <laughs> that, that was my, tw- yeah, so that, that was my tweet. I'll, I'll do another one in like 30 days. Listen, uh, I'm very, very fortunate to be in a position where, the vast majority of the people I'm investing for still have a long way to go in life. And many of them still have a long way to go in terms of putting money into the market on a regular basis. So we're not rooting for new highs. We like buying stocks down 5, 10, 15%. It's actually what you should be rooting for unless you start retirement tomorrow, which is not most people. So let's start with that and, and let's set the table there. And then the second thing is, we put about, I don't know, five, $600 million into direct indexing strategies as a firm over the last 18 months to two years. So when you see a day like yesterday, where we start green and end really ugly at the close, what are firms like mine, wealth management firms, utilizing direct indexing strategies doing? They're tax loss harvesting their asses off. That's our job. You're going to need tax losses in a year where the S&P is up 25% year to date. So we're taking advantage of that volatility. It's what we're supposed to be doing. And now you look at stocks that you would say are some of the highest quality companies in America trading down 20, 30% from their highs. PayPal, great example. Square is another example. These companies are going to rule the future And you could buy them almost cut in half from their July or August highs. So there are great things you could be doing as a long-term investor. There are great things you could be doing as a shorter-term player Mm -hmm. looking for quality names on the cheap. And I love this environment that we're in. And we're trying to do our best to take advantage of it from many different perspectives. You did the perfect segue for me and you saved me from having to do it. Pete, he mentioned PayPal. And of the stocks that Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about 53% of the S&P is down 10% or more from the 52-week high. PayPal among them, many other names on the list. In fact, you just bought PayPal because you say it's finally reasonable. It plays into exactly what Josh was talking about. Absolutely. And, and, and Josh is right on this one. And you talk about a stock. I mean, he's talking about 50%. How about the fact this stock was 310 
the 52-week highs, 310, and here we are today. We were under 180. I mean, that gives you a great example, Scott, of of trying to find something that when we when we're looking, we always talk about the shopping list. I heard Kramer talk about you always want to have your shopping list out there. This is one of those names. You just had to wait. Now I know a lot of people unfortunately got in at much higher levels. I think when you look at the levels now, where they are, with the, with the P.E. that's actually reasonable now, that trades in the 30s as far as the forward P.E., it's a company that has incredible growth. they got a great balance sheet. Everything is there. They continue to make incredible acquisitions. They're more and more into crypto all the time with Wallet. There's a lot of different things that they're doing, and I think they're doing a lot of things right. They have obviously got that Venmo piece that was huge. So there is so many different pieces of this company that I think it makes sense today. And when I looked at it, I looked at it over the last couple of days. I've been watching it for a while now, waiting to see when, was a, when does it look like a good opportunity. And today was the opportunity. And part of that was stock has sold off again today, early at least. It was down there near 179. And it just seemed, Scott, like this was the time where we start to see the market make one of these interesting moves once again. The news is, is out that's not as bad as people maybe first would have expected it to be from the Minnesota and the variant. And because of that, the market takes off to the upside and so does PayPal. So got a little bit lucky. It's a long way, Scott. This is one of those names where I think when you look at the company, you've, we've always liked the company. I think everybody on the desk has always thought of the world of PayPal. Mm-hmm. I just thought for too long it was way overpriced. I think now it's priced to a, a, a point where it, it makes some sense, and I can sell high impli- implied volatility options against my stock. You position. guys are moving the stock as we speak. Its stock goes up better than 4%. You saw it move. Uh, that's the highs of the day. Another stock that's come down a lot, its high was 26 better than 26 bucks. It's at $16 and change today, is Western Union. Why do I bring it up? Because Jenny Harrington has bought that stock. Talk to us. Right. So it's very much the same investment thesis that Pete had. It's down 40 percent and it's down completely in line with the payment processors. Meanwhile, it's actually got some pretty different dynamics as specific to this business. So you've got a company that's minting $800 million a year in free cash flow, trading at eight times earnings, five and a half percent dividend yield. New CEO coming in, who I think is pretty dynamic sounding and could do some cool stuff. He's actually coming over from Fiserv, where he ran the Clover business there. Um, So I think he's going to continue to push them into the technological digital future. It's just, it's cheap however you look at it. It's cheap based on its historical multiples. It's cheap based on the industry peers. It's cheap based on a price to sales. If you look at the kind of like pre-revenue, sorry, pre-earnings fintech darlings that you could compare it to. It's an interesting company. They should grow earnings in the eight plus percent range for the next couple years. And like you said, Scott, it's down 40%. So you can go fishing under the radar right now. I'm wondering why the farmer hasn't uh, put his rod in the water uh, to to play off that, Jim. I mean, it's just because you're all in. You've got no cash to put to work because you're the most bullish one of everybody. Why not go fishing? I'm feeling bad, Scott. Now, look, you just called it, right? I didn't see this Omicron thing coming. Uh, So I was fully invested. I didn't sell into it. I'm envious. I'm envious of everybody here buying. But at the same time, I'm looking at the portfolio I run. It's down 4% over the last week. I'll live with it. Yeah, I wish I had some cash right now. I don't. But I am comfortable, Scott, that Omicron is a head fake. Um, You know, and the reason I say that is because if you look at the internals of the stock market, 
it never recovered from Delta. It just didn't. Going into the weekend, if you look at any of the reopening stocks, airlines down, the Jets ETF down 15% since May, hotels down 15%. You know, it, there was a bloodbath before Omicron. In my opinion, that that sort of was the market had already baked in Omicron, even though it doesn't didn't know it was coming. So I'm staying in. I'm certainly not selling. But of course, I wish I had some cash right now. All right, Jimmy, let me let me play this off you. OK, um, maybe you're right. Let's hope you're right about Omicron. Don't know. Okay. Still too early. Okay. Let's just say you're right, and it's milder than maybe the first fears, um, et cetera. But then I still got to deal with the Fed. And and that's a good debate to have because the debate is being had right now on the street. I've got J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovic. We highlight his notes all the time. He says, what if this new variant ends up positive for risk? For a variety of reasons he talks about. But then I've got Savita Subramanian over Bank of America. He says, she says, we're cautious on the S&P. Why? Because hawkish Fed tightening into an overvalued market. So all things equal, you're right on the virus. How yeah. do I deal with the Fed, though? And listen, it's a good question. And I appreciate that you said we don't know because because I don't know. Well, you sound um, so definitive, though, as you as you say, it's you know, it's next to nothing. I mean, Right. You're, okay. You may be yeah. a farmer, but you're not an epidemiologist. So I'll, let's just throw that out there. Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. But I will say I always want to be clear in my opinions. And I certainly think I'm being that way when it comes to the Fed, uh, which two days ago I was on the show and you heard me say, I think it's the most important force out there. It's a fact that right now they are buying one hundred five billion dollars of bonds a month. That's just a fact. We know they're going to talk about tapering in an accelerated fashion, but that hasn't happened yet. Right now, that cash that's coming in via the Fed is going to be supportive of this dip. Now, I also want to say this because I don't want to be blase and I don't want to pretend to know things that are unknowable. But if you look at the last two Fed rate hike cycles from the time that the first rate hike was issued, which right now we're thinking, what is it, May, June of next year? You had two years in each of those cycles of 10% plus returns on the S&P 500. When the Fed gets aggressive, it doesn't immediately tank the market. What it does is increase volatility, but the markets still go up. And I expect that's what's going to happen now because economically, things look pretty good. Atlanta Fed now, GDP is 9.6% for this quarter. Yeah, I, I got you on that. But Jenny, I mean, let's assume, all right, that the Fed's on this new schedule, if you, if you want to characterize it. That way, let's say that we think rates are going to move up accordingly as a result of all of that. So multiples have to re-rate. How can you have the same multiples you have today in a different rate environment? It's just not possible. I think you can't. But I'm going to try to bridge Jim, Savita, and Marco right now, which is I think that you can be all in. And I think that you can also manage to what the Fed's doing, but you need to do it cautiously. And you need to kind of channel that Savita part, which is cautious. So think about the S&P 500. You have eight stocks that make up 30% that are trading at 29 times earnings. You have 492 companies that are trading at 17.7 times. Western Union, for example, trades at eight times earnings. You know, I bought that star bulk the week before. It was trading at five times earnings. You can be all in, but you need to be very careful with what you own. And what I think you should not own is you should not own long duration growth assets because they are overly sensitive to rising rates. So I think if you want to be all in because you're a student of the market and you know that market timing is going to bite you and then you know what, right? And you want to, and you are like me and Jim and you say, hey, this smart move is to stay all in if I'm long term. You want to do that? You just need to be careful with your portfolio. And 
you need to own things that aren't trading at 29 times, that don't only have 2 to 3% earnings growth or no earnings. You need to own things that are trading at 10 times, 15 times, 8 times, that have 6, 7, 8, 10% earnings growth. I, 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 I don't know. That's I mean, how you get your cake I, and eat I, I it don't too. know if that's necessarily true. I mean, Josh, maybe I can own something that's three million times or, or whatever, because look at Snowflake today, for example. You, you look at high multiple cloud stocks and today they're giving you every reason, even with their high valuations, to own them. CrowdStrike, Okta, Snowflake. What do you make of that? Well, they have great they have they have great earnings. But to Jenny's point, there has been a multiple contraction in software and I don't know that it's over yet. So you've had companies with outstanding results. CrowdStrike's a great example. But Wall Street has already told you in advance, we don't care how great those results are. This stock is not going to sell where it was selling if the cost of money is rising, if uh, the risk-free rate is going to serve as any kind of competition um, for, for these assets. Now, I happen to think there's a little bit of a clown show going on with people taking Powell's words at face value and actually believing that he could do something like double the pace of the taper. If that's what you honestly think is the new base case, I don't know what ball game you've been watching. I doubt the taper will be sped up. And if it is, I doubt it will happen in meaningful amounts. He can't do it. Don't forget where terminal uh, levels for rates were in the last rate hike cycle in 18. He tried to get to 2%. He ended up inverting the yield curve. Okay? So... If your base case is that all of a sudden Powell's going to turn into this hawkish inflation fighting uh, Paul Volcker figure, you really should not be managing your own money. You should give it to somebody else because that's not where this is going. And if you're also worried about Omnicrom becoming this horrific thing, then the Fed is out of the picture. They're doing nothing. There is no taper. So I don't know if I agree with Jenny that you can't own any companies that have long duration cash flow expectations or any higher multiple names. I think like in most cases, you want to strive for a balanced portfolio. You want companies that are cheap, of course, and I think you could find them in financial services and energy, but I also think you want growth. Because if we're going back to trend growth, which I think is, is likely, the high growth names are always going to have a bid, right? So yeah, you want to pick your spots, of course. But I think you want to have both in your portfolio and not think that you know what the regime ahead of us is definitely going to be. That's a very tough game to play, as hard as it is to time the overall market. Go ahead, Jenny. Okay, thanks. So I want to be really clear. I agree with you, Josh. You don't need to not own any high multiple names. But if you do own a high multiple name, you have got to have the earnings growth to back it up. So I don't think you should be buying something right now that trades at, say, 50 times earnings and only has three, four, five percent earnings growth. It's not the way it was last Agreed. year. You cannot use the broad brush. You can't say I'm going to buy the mat. You know, Edgar Denny calls How about the fifty times sales. You can't buy. <laughs> right. Okay. You can't. And so you need to be really, really careful and picky this year. But even if you look at the payment processors, you know, there's what like 30 companies in that industry. They're not all equal. You need to suss through it and figure out which ones of those aren't. You know, are down are down 40% without justification. Some of them are justified in being down so much. So yeah, like 
you know, this is where I look at the list of like the Peloton, Zillow's, Lemonade's, Roku's, Pinterest's, DraftKings. They're all down, you know, like 75%. I don't think that many of them are going to recover because they do not have the earnings growth to have supported what the previous multiples, if they even had one, were. So wow. you need to be careful. Those are interesting words. You don't totally think, agree. Like, you don't totally think a lot agree. of those are going to recover. Oh, you do agree. You don't, you don't think a lot of those stocks that are down yeah. a lot that she just mentioned aren't going to recover? No. no. No, a lot of those just had the best year they'll ever have in their lifetime. There's never going to be a better environment than, gonna... what, than what Zoom and Peloton. Uh, never, like literally never. It will never be as good no. as it was from March to March. No, but, but some can be good. Those some, comps... can, some can be better than others, right? Like the, the, the way we work may arguably be changed forever, not to the degree that it was a year ago. So a Zoom may have a better prospect in in whatever, you know, the the new environment is relative to, say, I'm just using this as an example, um, a Peloton, which was maybe a once in a lifetime moment for a stock. The better example of what you're saying, the the better example of what you're saying is Peloton versus DocuSign. We are never going back Mm -hmm. in my industry, never going back to paper account forms and paper ACAT forms and paper trading authorizations and move money forms that have to be wet ink signature. It's never happening. And last year was an acceleration, not of demand like they're making cars, an acceleration of adoption. And judge, you're nailing it. That's an example of something where just the way something is done is now permanently altered. Peloton does not have that same benefit. It was an acceleration of adoption, yes, but also an acceleration in equipment sold. You're not going to see another wave of equipment being purchased like that. It's just not going to happen. But then using your example. And it turns out. Let me, pe- let me use your people example. People like going to the gym. They don't like signing things with a pen. So those are, that's a really good way that you just broke those two things apart. And I think you have to think critically that way. But I'm looking at a DocuSign, for example. Can- the 52-week highs, 315. I'll, I'll, I'll call that. Pete, why can't a DocuSign... Because of what Josh said, some things are never going to go back to the way they were before. DocuSign's 233. Why can't it get back? I think that so much was moved to the upside at such an accelerated pace, Scott, that I think we got to find an area that's going to be probably, I don't know if you want to call it more of a normalization, but an area that, that makes a little bit more sense. I think everything got a little bit about, out of hand. Everybody went into that, okay, stay at home. Everything that's a stay-at-home stock is going to go shooting to the upside. I said over a year ago to you on this show about Peloton, I said well, exactly what Josh just said. I said, people want to be social. People will go back to the gyms. They did, and they will continue mm-hmm. to go back to the gyms. And obviously, they have to move and shift around as time goes by and as the government makes decisions on masks and all the rest of those things. But I think that the reality is there's a lot of these companies that absolutely, it was bought by everybody, and then suddenly they got that hit. And then when they get that hit, they probably, to, to Josh's point, I don't know that they ever get back up to the highs that they got to because it was a perfect storm. It mm-hmm. was the perfect scenario in a lot of ways. And it kicked it off. These are still great companies. I look at DocuSign and so many more of these companies that were the stay-at-home start companies that now are going to be a big piece of us for the rest of our lives as we go forward. And because of that, 
I think that they'll do well, but I don't know that they'll ever return to those kind of lofty levels where they were because everybody got over-exuberated about what they were looking for to the upside. Let me ask you this before we take a quick break, and I mentioned your PayPal buy at the beginning of the show, but let's, let's wrap yeah. up this segment by talking about some of the calls that you've, you've also done, Pete. Ford, uh, Under Armour, these are all bought, uh, new call buys from Pete. Ford, Under yes. Armour, MGM, mm-hmm. Starbucks, and Vistra. So uh, the most interesting one of the group actually was from yesterday, which was MGM. And, and I say that because that's part of this whole, you know, reopen trade, right? We talk about the casinos all the time. I like MGM for the reason that they don't have the same kind of exposure that we look for with Wynn and Las Vegas Sands to the Asian markets. I think for that reason, this is a stock that actually can outperform. It already has, and I think it will continue to outperform to the upside. It's well off of its lows as, as you st- take a look today. Vegas Sands win. They're basically on their lows once again, or at least very, very close to that. So I think there are certain names that are going to work in certain areas. I liked when I saw some unusual option activity yesterday in MGM. I think a lot of the names that you just brought up, Scott, I just I liked them for what they are. Starbucks is a great example of that, right? I mean, everybody was going back and forth and about Starbucks. Are they getting a little bit too high or too much in front of themselves? When I see that call buying, I still look at that stock and I say, you know what? They still have so many opportunities for growth, not just here, but internationally. So I like that one as well. Pete, I appreciate that. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, today does mark the 20th anniversary of Enron's bankruptcy filing. Jim Chanos began shorting the company a year before the collapse. He joins us next, along with journalist Bethany McLean. She also joins us. She was among the first to raise the alarm bells on Enron. Talk to both when we come back in two minutes. It's been 20 years since Enron filed for bankruptcy. Perhaps no investor better identified with that event than our next guest. Jim Chanos began shorting Enron a year before its collapse. Calls that trade the biggest of his career. Jim joins us now along with the Vanity Fair contributor Bethany McLean, who was one of the first to write skeptically about Enron while at Fortune. She also co-wrote the book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron. It's so good to have you both with us. Thanks for being here today. Hi, guys. Jim, I'll start with you. Um, you know, in looking at the, the research and looking back at, at history, you were first turned on to the Enron story, I think, in October of 2000 because of an article that was written in the Texas version of the Wall Street Journal about accounting practices at large energy trading firms. Is that correct? That's correct. It was a it was a piece in the Texas Journal heard on the street column by their accounting uh, reporter, John Weil, who uh, who many years later came to work for us. And uh, it talked about Enron getting approval from the SEC uh, for so-called mark to market, which is actually much more appropriately called mark to model accounting for their energy derivative business. And what that led was aggressive, uh, uh, aggressive accounting on their derivatives book in lots of areas. Um, but that was just sort of the opening, the opening chapter and, and, and what got us to open a file in, uh, in September, October of, uh, of 2000. You took a look at their 1999 um, SEC filing and then actually put the short on in November, which, as I said in the intro, you say is the biggest of, of your career. Um, can you quantify at this point how big the, the trade was at the time? Well, I think I think biggest in my career, it, it's sort of, uh, uh, you know, in terms of possibly just history. 
uh, not in terms of uh, not in terms of size of position, um, because our our fund got much bigger afterwards. But um, but but we have a position limit, you know, uh, like any short portfolio. Uh, but it was pretty much a full position um, from the get go. I mean, we saw enough uh, beyond just the derivative accounting. Uh, there was uh, just a myriad of exec executive departures um, in 1999 and 2000. There was quite a bit of insider selling. But what really got us intrigued and, and became much more important, as Bethany can, can certainly tell you, was this odd disclosure in the footnotes about these entities in which a senior executive of Enron was the general partner that did business with Enron. And uh, we now know much later, of course, those were the, the famous uh, SPVs off balance sheet, uh, the Raptors and the Chucos and, and so on. And, uh, and Enron began to disclose more and more about those as each quarter went on as we got into 2001. Bethany, what's so interesting about, you know, your involvement in, the, in this whole thing, I have the fortune cover in front of me, which, which I'm going to hold up. And, of course, you have to look all the way up into the left corner of the cover, which simply says, is Enron overpriced? Your intrigue in, in this story, I think, at least began more on the valuation side of the stock rather than having deep rooted thoughts about major shenanigans taking place at the company. Yeah, for sure it did. I've often joked that that story um, should have won awards for the biggest title in journalistic history because given that the company was bankrupt six months later, I guess, yeah, it was, it was overpriced. Um, but, you know, part of it was that back at that time, I was young and we were coming off this time of incredible optimism in the markets of the dot-com boom where these things weren't supposed to happen. And I think it didn't, I think I was too naive for it to really occur to me or for me to really process that this could be a gigantic fraud. And so it was, it was a valuation issue because it's hard to remember now, but Enron was just this star of a company. I think I began that story by saying Enron was an it stock, like an it girl on, on, in Hollywood. It was that popular. I think every analyst but one had a buy rating on the stock and people thought the stock was going to double in the next 12 months. I mean, it was this, it was this, superstar of a company, sort of like a Google today. And so the idea that the, the, the gap between the reality of the company and as exposed by its numbers and the reputation of the company was just mammoth. I'm wondering if you can also shed some light on a story that, that we've heard, too, about Enron executives sort of knowing that your story is coming and Andy Fastow and others literally flying to New York to try and get your story shut down and Jeffrey Skilling at the time, who did not travel to New York, but whom you spoke to on the phone, basically suggesting you, you had no idea what you were talking about. If you did more research and other things that you would understand their side of the story. Can you recount both tales for us, please? Sure. So I, you have to call as a journalist, obviously, before you, before you write anything about somebody. And so I called him and I sort of expected that the whole thing. I thought they'd be like, yeah, 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 everybody raises these criticisms, whatever. And instead, they got really upset. And so Jeff Skilling told me that I was unethical for writing this piece because he said that if I understood the company, I would realize how ridiculous the things I was saying were, or raising were. And so it was unethical for me to write a story when I had so little comprehension of the company's actual business. Um, he later explained this phone call in congressional testimony when, when after Enron's collapse. We wanted to tell her, what, explain to her the question she was asking, which I thought was awesome. Uh, anyway, so then they had uh, Andy Fastow, along with a couple of other executives, fly up to 
of Fortune's offices, and I still remember waiting at the elevator banks in the old Fortune and the old Time Inc. offices in Rockefeller Center and thinking, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I, I, was, I was terrified, to be honest. And so we sat down with Andy Fasto and these couple of other ex- executives in this windowless conference room at Fortune and went through everything for, for hours. Uh, including these these off-balance sheet partnerships that Jim mentioned and which turned out to be critical to the story, but which I left out of my original piece. Um, the reason I left it out is, that, again, I was naive. The accountants and the um, board of directors had signed off on these partnerships, and I thought, well, this doesn't sound right to me, but I guess, I guess, I guess it can't be wrong if all the gatekeepers signed off on it. Yeah, it, that's such an interesting part of the story. Jim, Bethany also mentioned this love affair that Wall Street analysts had with, with Enron at the time. Not a single one had a sell rating uh, on the stock. As we sort of spin this, this story forward to where we are today, are, are we any better today than we were then from a research or a sell side side of the, the story I don't know. I mean, sell side, the sell side is, is there, you know, primarily to, to, to sell ideas um, to their clients. Uh, being too critical, particularly if you're an industry analyst, is not going to win you uh, access to management, which is crucial for most sell side analysts. So, so you have to take a lot of it with, with a large grain of salt. Um, it can be, it can be uh, insightful. You can earn, we get sell side research. We read it. But you also just have to understand, as you would from a short seller who's short a stock, you have to understand point of view and incentives and just, you know, are, are, what are the facts? What are the opinions? And what what are you not reading or hearing? Um, I think it's important. One thing I want to mention about what Bethany just said, it's kind of really important to bring the story to today. Um, Bethany came up with a concept that I actually teach in my course on fraud. And it, it's the concept of what what she's dubbed legal fraud. And I think that the vast majority of corporate wrongdoing, both then and now, falls under this umbrella of what Bethany calls legal fraud. And and that is basically everything is done by the corporation to the letter of the law. The accountants and the attorneys sign off on the deals or the accounting, as she mentioned, but yet there's an intent to deceive. And I think that's a really important thing for investors to understand from the Enron uh, story. Everything Enron did literally was pretty much by the book. Um, There were a few things where they crossed over the bright line, but yet there was an intent to deceive. And they were actually prosecuted for lying to shareholders, not for accounting fraud. Sure. And Bethany, I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, lastly, um, the role of regulators today. Um, You talk about the gatekeepers sort of allowing this whole thing to happen. But what about the regulators? Do you think we're any better today than we were then? I, I, I don't. We, we passed in the wake of Enron, we passed this law called Sarbanes-Oxley, and there's great speech where President Bush stands in the Rose Garden and talks about how markets are now safe for ordinary investors because ex- executives will be prosecuted if they deceive people. And, you know, six years later, there's President Barack Obama standing in the Rose Garden giving a speech as he passes Dodd-Frank in the wake of the financial crisis. And when you read the two speeches, they're remarkably similar, right? <laughs> and, and I don't, I don't, Think much. I don't think much has, has changed, and it goes. It does go to this concept of legal fraud that a lot of wrongdoing in the markets is is perfectly legal. People think of it 
Enron is this gigantic fraud, but much of their accounting systems were, were legal. And that's the problem, is the very clever use and misuse of the rules uh, with, with an intent to deceive and obfuscate. It's, uh, it's fascinating to, to look back and, and reminisce about not only then, but think about where we are today, if we're any better off. Uh, Bethany, thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to see you. It's been a while. And Jim, you'll, uh, you'll stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to come back and talk about the markets with you and much more. We'll do that after this quick break. Kroger announcing this week it will introduce the first carbon-neutral, cage-free eggs to U.S. customers starting next year. A solar-powered production facility will use feed made from surplus food to reduce climate impacts. And that's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Health officials confirming another U.S. case of the Omicron variant, this one in Minnesota. The person traveled to New York City for an anime convention on November 19th through the 21st. Days later, they tested positive. The person had mild symptoms and has since recovered. And on the news tonight, Meg Terrell covers the latest on the spread of Omicron in the U.S. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Murder charges have been filed against a white Ohio sheriff's deputy who fatally shot a black man in the back five times. Now retired deputy Jason Mead was also charged with reckless homicide for the death of Casey Goodson. The shooting remains largely unexplained and involved no body camera or dash cam footage. Just hours into the major league's first work stoppage in 26 years, Commissioner Rob Manfred is criticizing the players union's demands. He says it expanded free agency and wider salary arbitration will hurt small market teams. He also acknowledges that the lockout may have consequences for baseball. It's not a good thing for the sport. It's, it's not something um, that we undertake lightly. We, we understand it's bad for our business. We took it out of a desire to drive the process forward to an agreement now. And you are now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate that, Rahel Solomon. We are back with Kinecos Associates founder, Jim Chanos. And the reason I wanted you to stick around, Mr. Chanos, is because I noticed your stunt double on Twitter and Jim Labenthal uh, having quite a spirited debate last evening about win, which you are short. It seemed, and I bring in Pharma Jim as well for, for this too, uh, it seems to me that this is a difference of opinion about how you view win, whether it, you are negative because of its Macau presence, whereas Jim seems no. to, well, I think it, this is like a Macau versus U.S. debate, at least it seemed to be on, on Twitter. Jim, why are you short win? So we do not, uh, our problem with the win story is that value investors keep basically claiming the stock is cheap. We don't think it's cheap. This is not a call on Macau although I think Macau is problematic. I think this is a problem in alluding to a little bit what, what Josh Brown said earlier about, you know, if you're, if you're not making money when things are, are really good, um, you've, got, you've got to question the business model. But as it relates to Wynn, a simple analysis would tell us Wynn is not supposed to make money in 2022, earnings per share. It's supposed to make a couple dollars, but I think two and a half dollars in 2023. It made a little over $2 pre-pandemic in 2019. 
So at $80, this is not a cheap stock. We could argue EBITDA, we could argue definitions, we could argue forecasts, and I'm not looking for a recession to be short wing, but, but arguably this is not a cheap stock. And that's, that's really our case. Jim Leventhal, what's your issue with, with Jim's take? Well, it's a, it's a thoughtful position. Um, you know, I, I think you'll agree, uh, Mr. Chanos, that the right way to measure a casino stock is enterprise value to EBITDA. And I know that you have done that. Um, where you and I differ is both Macau and China, because to start with, excuse me, Macau in the U.S. In the U.S., you and I have had this debate on Twitter. I simply think that for your EBITDA numbers to be correct, even adjusting for corporate overhead as you want me to do, uh, to get to those numbers for 2022, I just don't see how you do it without a recession here in the U.S., I look at last month's gross gaming revenues in Las Vegas. They were up 30%. I look at room rates for wind. I'm sorry, up 30% over 2019, over pre-pandemic. Room rates uh, for wind up 24% uh, in the fourth quarter uh, over 2019. They're making money. Um, Now, on the enterprise value, and I've heard you bring it up because it's the right way to look at it, 18 billion of enterprise value, 6 billion of that is the uh, debt value of Win Macau. I don't think Win Macau is a zero. But however, let's just dance with that for a moment. If it is a zero, I've looked at the bond prospectus for the five and five eighths coupon bonds of 2028 for Win Macau. It shows no sign that it goes back to the parent company. This is an independent subsidiary. I've read the 10K for Win Resorts. It does not in any way indicate that that debt comes back to Win Resorts uh, if if Win Macau is a zero. So, you know, this is a fun debate, and I think you'll agree it's a fun debate because it's a complicated capital structure, a complicated set of financial statements. I'm having fun debating it with. We look at it the same way. The net debt at Win Macau is about $5 billion. The net debt at Win Parent only is about $5 billion. With the stock at 80, the enterprise value of Win US is about $14 billion. The value of their 72% stake in the equity of Win Macau, which trades publicly in Hong Kong, is $3 billion. So the, the U.S. operations are being valued at about $11 billion right now in the market with the stock at 80. And even using your 700 and some million of EBITDA uh, for the U.S. operations, it's still at 15 to 16 times that number. And that's where you and I differ. I don't think that's cheap for a U.S. land-based casino operation. I I think, as you alluded to earlier, our projections are different. And we had this on Twitter. You're at 600. I'm at 720. I think I'm low. I think I'm lowballing it. You pointed out uh, accurately, you know, Bloomberg's at 675. Uh, Maybe you and I should go have dinner sometime soon out uh, out at Wynn, and we'll see how easy it is to move through the hotel and the casino and the streets there. It's, that, it's pretty that, damn packed. That could be unfair. Jim's, Mr. Chanos' picture might be on the wall there. He might be persona non grata <laughs> at Wynn. You yeah, have I to had, pick, I, you have I, to I pick a different casino to go have that dinner. Let, let me do this before I let you go, um, Jim Chanos. Uh, again, back to this Twitter thing. I, I noticed some conversation about DoorDash and, and DraftKings. And I I don't recall outside of that social media platform you talking about this publicly. Are are you short both of those names currently? Well, let me let me again tie this back to my good friend Josh Brown uh, earlier. It's always good to tie it to somebody else. (laughs) Um, Let's look at DraftKings for a second. 
And, and, and DraftKings has a valuation right now of 30 times run rate revenues. And here's a little just a thought exercise to tell you on how expensive some stocks can still be. If you quadrupled DraftKings revenues and gross profits, quadrupled, and basically that everybody in the United States, every state has sports betting, and then some, and it grows. And you take their marketing spend, which is currently over 100% of revenues, you take it to 10% of revenues, which is their target. And you keep the overhead at today's level. You don't add anything. DraftKings would still be losing 200 million a quarter or 800 million a year. That is completely and totally insane. And so you could believe in sports betting, you can bet on, on football and basketball to your heart's content, but this business model is flawed. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can talk to the FanDuel CEO who was on your network talking about the marketing spend in the US and how crazy it is. But we're giving, we're giving them their, their target at 10% of revenues for marketing spend. All of this stuff you see on TV goes away basically. And the company would still lose money at 4x its current run rate of revenues. It's at 30 times revenues today. That It just tells you just how kind of nuts things got uh, over the past 12 months in some of these high-growth names that are getting hit now. Uh, uh, have you been short this name for, for how can you characterize how long? We've been, we've been short this for, for, for most of uh, 2021. Okay. Um, and the DoorDash name that I mentioned, too, I, I think we had spoken in the past about Grubhub. In fact, you, you may have talked about that at CNBC's Delivering Alpha a couple, you know, two, two and a half years ago, if I recall I correctly. Um, and, and, and Just Eat Takeaway bought them uh, and is now suffering for it. Um, look, it, it gets back to what, again, if you're not making money in the pandemic when everybody is ordering food and, and everybody is staying at home, and you have a captive audience, if not now, when? And, and you know, I've been, I've been pretty bearish on all of the, the, uh, the ride-hailing and delivery companies. And, and I think that, that really the issue is kind of complex. It involves labor arbitrage and taxes and things like that. But I think it's just much more simpler, as Josh alluded, if not now, when? If you're not coining money uh, at a point at which everyone is using your service, uh, and you hope to be making money three or four years out from now. Look, business is tough. Competition is there. I always joke that what happens if the disruptors get disrupted? And, and you know, that, that's the problem. If you're not making a lot of money and the capital markets turn a lot less friendly, um, valuations for these kinds of companies, as we saw, to go back to the Enron era, uh, valuations get, get destroyed for money-losing companies when capital's not available. Josh, I, I, I feel like I'll give you the, the last word here since Jim has mentioned you a couple of times. So I, I think, I think what, what Jim was talking about with DraftKings, there are so many companies that are in these industries that are more competitive than investors think. But I think we had 25 million brokerage accounts opened in the last 18 months or something like that for the first time, like brand new investors. And I think they think their job is to like bet on the brand names that they like. And Jim would concede this, that trading strategy, as ludicrous as it sounds, actually was working really, really well. And what I agree with him is when capital gets scarce, 
not just at the company level, but at the investor level, when all of a sudden margin balances contract and the checks from the government go away, this strategy of like, oh, I really love that brand or their commercial or I love the product, I'll buy the stock at any price, that's really not going to work anymore. And arguably that process has already started. There are a lot of stocks down 50% from the February highs and a lot of young investors learning this lesson that loving a, a company or a spokesperson for a company is not good enough reason to pay whatever for a stock. Like people are learning that in real time. I would agree with that. Yeah. Hey, Jim, it's good to see you as always. Thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. I'll see you in Vegas, Jim. <laughs> yeah, just not at the win. That's Jim Chanos <laughs> joining us there. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back up next. Skybridge Capital's Anthony Scaramucci. He's doubling down on his crypto exposure. We're going to give you the numbers, the details. He'll tell you why next. Volatility in the market not limited to stocks and bonds. As you know, Bitcoin has swung from a high near 67,000 to near 57,000 today. There it is, just under that level. Our next guest, he continues to increase his firm's exposure to crypto. Anthony Scaramucci, the founder of Skybridge Capital, joins us live. Good to see you. Good to be here, Scott. Thanks. Increasing your exposure is kind of an understatement. I mean, you increased it by almost 150 percent in Q3. I mean, there's you know, going all in and then there's kind of betting the farm. Well, you have to remember some of that is price appreciation. So, you know, Bitcoin was back at the 29,000 level at the end of May and now is up in the mid 50s. And so you're getting the benefit of that. Uh, But we also launched a uh, ETF, CRPT, which is a sort of crypto ecosystem, publicly traded security ETF. Uh, We're about to uh, go to Abu Dhabi next week, Scott. We're going to be launching a $200 million cryptocurrency fund. It'll have some components of private equity and some components of the coins. And, of course, this week down at the Cypher in Miami Beach, uh, we launched on December 1st a $100 million Algorand fund. Uh, The Skybridge Research Department thinks that Algorand actually uh, has the opportunity to potentially flip Ethereum. It's, it's, It's faster uh, lower transaction charges. It's a net negative carbon footprint. And as that community develops, I think we're sitting on with something like Algorand, uh, Google, uh, and you and I are old enough to remember when Alta Vista and AOL were the leaders at the nascent stages of the internet, uh, and they were trumped by Google. And so something like Algorand is something we're putting a lot of money and resources in. And so, yes, we see this, uh, the blockchain and these currencies as big delayering mechanisms for the economy. And we certainly don't want our clients to miss this. Understood. But at what point do you feel like you could be too concentrated in, in crypto, regardless of how bullish you are? And I don't know if you're, you're willing to you know, give this number on, on live television. But in terms of Skybridge's overall assets, what percentage are in crypto relative to equities? Yeah, well, we've got we've got nine billion in assets. There's about one point three billion in cryptocurrencies right now uh, and different funds vary. Obviously, we have a, a pure uh, uh, First Trust Skybridge Bitcoin fund, First Trust Skybridge Ethereum fund. So those are pure plays, Scott. But in general, it's it's averaging anywhere from 10 to 25 percent, depending on the fund. Uh, But again, a lot of this stuff is from price appreciation. So remember, if you're on our core fund, Series G, which is up just over 20 percent this year, uh, you're getting the likes of 0.72 and Code 2 and Dan Loeb's third point. Uh, But then you're also getting some cryptocurrency exposure as well. 
And I'll, I'll tell you, they have very good non-correlative properties relative to what's going on in the stock and bond market. And so, uh, so for us, we've got a lot of demand in these products right now. The firm is uh, on an upswing. I think this was a record year for us for revenues this year. Uh, and so I, I, I like the dynamics of where we're going. And I'm going to quote Warren Buffett, who hates crypto, Scott. Uh, he once said he wouldn't trade Michael Jordan for four scrubs and call it diversification. And so we don't want to sell, sell our winners here right now, particularly where we like the macro backdrop. Understood. But there's, you know, people who get themselves into these positions where they're sitting on huge winners sometimes just rebalance the, the portfolio to decrease the percentage of the fund that has exposure yeah. to something that's appreciated as much as a, a crypto has, especially given the volatility that we may witness going forward. Right. But again, you have to remember, volatility may not be a measurement of risk. You know, in early adoption technology stories, you're going to have to set some volatility as people get comfortable with the story. But I think your point's well taken. And I think our Skybridge research team, Ray Nolte and Brett Messing, I think, you know, both those guys a long period of time. They're looking at this every day. Well, we're managing our own money. Uh, To quote Leon Cooperman, we're eating our own cooking. Uh, so I've got a lot of my own money in that fund, if not all of it, except for the real estate holdings I have personally. And so we are watching it very carefully. And your point's well taken. At some point, we will rebalance on the margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't want to rebalance as we are seeing the arc of great opportunity. We predict the Bitcoin uh, cash ETF is coming. Right. I think that'll be another big leg up in demand. Scott. All right. It's good to see you, Anthony. Thanks for being here. That's Anthony Scaramucci, Skybridge. Final trades are next. All right, we get finals in just a second. Pete, unusual first. What do you got? I got open doors, number one. We've talked about this one before. Stocks trading around 15. They were buying the February uh, 16 calls yesterday. They're buying 8,000 of the January 16 calls today. About a buck 30 for those. Beatrice is a name that I have not ever seen before, Scott, but this one's pretty interesting. They bought 10,000 of the January 12 and a half calls in there. Stock trading right around 12 at the time. So two very interesting trades that we're seeing out there in the future. You got a final trade before I let you go? I'm going to give you Apple. We had 80,000 mm-hmm. calls bought today. Sticking with Apple. All right. Interesting. Um, good stuff. Jenny? Yep. The original block is an H&R, down 10% off its high, 4.5% dividend yield. Okay. Thank you. Farmer Jim. General Motors, I don't know if you covered it yesterday, but they pre-announced uh, for the quarter on increased chip supply. Very good news. We can't cover it every day, Jim. I mean, I'm sorry. We just can't do it. <laughs> Josh Brown. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, some of the best growth uh, uh, combined with some of the cheapest valuation you can find in the large cap space. I like it right here. All right, quick update on stocks, too, before we go, Dow. I see right now up 637 points. Does it for us? The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. CNBC. 